If you have your Bibles tonight, and I hope that you do, we are going to be in Obadiah, another one of the minor prophets. Uh, But before we jump into the book of Obadiah, we need to figure out who the book of Obadiah is written to. A group of people uh, from Edom called the Edomites. And so if you have that wonderful book uh, that I hope that you have brought, I want you to flip back to the beginning of your Bible in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. And then there is another verse that I did not put on the screen tonight, which I'm sure they could find it. But as always, I want to encourage you to do something. And that is... Bring your Bibles. So, uh, Genesis chapter 21. Uh, The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. You say, wait, that name sounds familiar. Uh, Abraham had a son. They had a couple, but he had one that was the son of promise, Isaac. And Isaac married a gal by the name of Rebekah. Rebekah was barren for almost two decades. And she gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the son of promise and who the lineage of the Messiah, etc. would run. But in Genesis chapter 25, and starting in verse 21, starting in verse 21, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was... And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It goes on and says, So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so we see this passage of Scripture. It all looks normal. It all looks very well. And then we begin to see that the younger would rule over the older, which was unheard of in the biblical day that we are living and seeing here. We then see that we have parental disagreements. One loves Esau. One loves Jacob. And so we're going to look at what happened, but over the course of these two boys' lives, there were some things that happened, some deceit, some trickery, and it continued on throughout their generations. In the book of Numbers, when the children of Israel had 
been making their way back to the promised land in Numbers chapter 20. I want you to hear this because it sets the setting of why there was bad blood, why they had been this way to Israel, and why God pronounced judgment on them. In Numbers chapter 20, starting in verse 40, Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. He pleads to them, we're of the same kin. We both have Abraham as our father. You know all of the hardship that has befallen us. How our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, He heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. He pleads to them about how good God has been to them and how God has set them free and they are just passing through. But Look what it says. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through your fields or your vineyards, nor will we drink water from your wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Then Edom said to him, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway, and if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. And then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through its territory. So Israel turned away from him. And so throughout the history of the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, and the descendants of Jacob, there had been hatred, there had been war. In King David's time, he brought them under subjection through war and military conquest. But after the kingdom of Israel split, they viewed this as an opportunity to rebel. And so they had rebelled and became their own entity. They had regained some of their prominence and strength. And they had used that opportunity to get back at Israel, to get back at the people who, by all of their accounts, they should have been the people of promise. They were descendants of the oldest son. They should have received the land. They should have received the blessings. And they were cheated by Jacob who was a deceiver and a trickster. And so for hundreds of years, this unforgiveness, this bitterness, this jealousy had led this group of people to hate the people of God. And so when we find ourselves in the book of Obadiah, God finally says, I've had enough. Judgment is coming. You are going to get what is coming to you. And so over in the book of Obadiah, if you have that wonderful book in front of you, it says these words. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. 
And a messenger has been sent among the nation, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. If you underline in your Bible or make a highlight, that's the verse you want to. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? That's another one to underline. Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how will you be cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat from your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Eden and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty man, O Tamin, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be caught off by slaughter. And so if you're taking notes, we see God's judgment on Edom or God's judgment on an unforgiving, prideful people. And this is what God is saying. You are going to be totally destroyed. Your mountain fortresses can't stop you. Your hidden caves can't protect you. I am sending an enemy that is going to search you out, seek you, and annihilate you. He says this is a divine judgment. This is something I am doing to you because of this. And you say, well, what is that which brought this judgment on them? Starting in verse 10, it says, For violence against your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever in the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces. When foreigners entered his gate and cat lost for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have grazed, gazed on the day of your brother, in the day of his captivity. Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in their day of destruction. Nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity." nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should have not stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the days of distress. What we see here is that when Israel's enemies came to them, the Edomites, while they were family, while they were descendants of Abraham, did not fight for Israel, they joined with the oppressors. They would have taken the spoils of war.
they would have looked down on them and enjoyed their misery. We see here that in verse 11, the stood, they did not help, they rejoiced, they celebrated their defeat. We can look at all of the other things along this way, but what we see here is their unforgiveness, their bitterness, their hatred for Israel. God says, because you have become so proud and so arrogant and so wicked, judgment's coming. Friends, what we see in this passage of Scripture is the danger of unforgiveness, the danger of pride. Think about this for the nation of Edom and the Edomite people. If you're thinking back to how the world works, you have a claim. We were the oldest son. And not only were we the oldest son, Jacob deceived us multiple times. If you want to flip back over to Genesis chapter 25, remember Jacob stole the birthright. In Genesis 25, starting in verse 29, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field and was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me of this day, So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And so we see in Esau's moment of weakness, Jacob stole his inheritance, a double portion of what he had coming to him, Jacob stole. Now, I have pastored a long time. And I wish I could tell you that every time someone loses a matriarch or a patriarch and it comes to the kids, that everybody just gets along. There are no fights over land and money and stocks and mineral rights. Everybody just comes together at the funeral and they hug and they weep and they just, it's all okay and everything's going to be great. We're all going to split it up. And I sit in those funerals and think, well, praise the Lord. God can do a miracle. And no more do they fur that first shovel load of dirt on that casket. Then it begins. I want this, I want that, I'm the oldest, I was here, I never moved away. And the trickery and the deceit and the fighting and the bitterness and the greed just consumes some people. And so just imagine if you were entitled to double of everything and over a bowl of stew gave it all away. The bitterness, the unforgiveness... The jealousy would have controlled his mindset. And so the people of Edom said, that should have been ours. Israel's wealth and prosperity, it should have belonged to us. It was stolen from us. But it doesn't get any better because in Genesis chapter 27, if you have that wonderful book in front of you, 
Now it came to pass when Isaac, this is Jacob and Esau's father, was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered him and said, Here I am. Then he said, Behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food such as I love. And bring it back that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. We know Esau gets his stuff, obeying his father, he goes out to hunt, but something happens. Rebecca overhears and says, you've already got enough, but you don't have enough enough. Friends, if you want to know what kind of damage your parenting can do to your children, look to this story. And so she tells Isaac, she says, uh, you know, you need to trick your father. Bring this game and we'll cook it and, and, uh, and we'll get this blessing for you. And in verse 11, Jacob says, but Esau's a hairy man. I'm a smooth-skinned man. My father is going to feel me and know. But in verse 13, it wasn't Jacob. It was his mother. Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go them for me. We know that she covers him with something. He goes in. Uh, Jacob thinks it's Esau, and he blesses him. Jacob even said to his father in verse 19, I am Esau, your firstborn. But Isaac says in verse 20, how, how is this possible? Man, that was, that was drive through McDonald's fast, right? And listen to what Jacob says in verse 20. Some of the most frightening words I think I've ever read. And he said, because the Lord your God brought it to me. He should have said, no, that wicked wife of yours has done this to me. My evil mother has... But he gives God the credit for his wickedness and deceit. And so it says that Isaac said it's Jacob's voice, but his hands are hairy and all these things. And so he blessed him. And he even says in verse 24, Are you really my son Esau? This is not just some simple trickery. This is a gigantic plot. And so he blesses him as we know. And then verse 30 says, Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. He also had made this savory food. And Isaac says, Who are you? He says, I'm your son, and you can read this in your own time, because we don't have time. But listen to what verse 34 says, and this is something that just should break your heart. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me also, O my father. He says, Lord, he says, Father, I just want to be blessed. But listen to what verse 35 says. But he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken your blessing. Away. 
So when Edom hated Israel, they kind of had a good reason. They had been wronged. But don't miss this. Even though they had a ground for offense, even though they had been wronged, God doesn't say, I know you were wrong, so I will let your pride and arrogance and unforgiveness go unpunished. Friends, it does not matter what other people do to us. There is never a justification for our sin. You can say, well, Jake, I was raised in a home that way. It's no justification. In my, in my house, my favorite thing to say is, girls, you get that from your mother. My daughter said the other day, she said, well, Jake, I'm a gray and a web, so there's a lot of bad traits. I said, easy there. But there are no traits that I give to my children and the sin that affects us that the Holy Spirit cannot overcome. You say, Jake, I've been holding on to this unforgiveness toward people we go to church with, to people that are in my family, to people that I work with, and God is okay with it. What you need to read from the book of Obadiah is, is he is not. There is never a time when you can look at God and say, Lord, I know that it is sin, but I really believe you're okay with it. You understand me. You know what I've been through. You know how I feel. And what God teaches us through the book of Obadiah is, no, sin always has consequences. You might have been lied about. You might have been wronged. You might have been cut off in traffic. You might have been bumped out of the self-checkout line at Walmart. Wherever it is, your family might have stole your inheritance. They might have wronged you at church. Your work might have passed you over. And everything in you says, I'm right. I'm going to get mine. And what Obadiah teaches us is no. Don't let your pride and arrogance and unforgiveness bring you to ruin. I think it's a simple reminder for all of us because all of us, all of us, all of us can be vindictive. All of us can struggle with unforgiveness. All of us can struggle with I'm right and I don't care to let everybody know it. I don't care what happens to them. What they've done to me is worse. But yet we see here that God tells them judgment's coming. But not only that, in verses 15 and 16, if you're taking notes of the book of Obadiah, God doesn't just bring judgment on the prideful people of Edom. He tells them that all prideful nations will be humbled. It goes on in verse 15 and 16 and says, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done it, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. As you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall all drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. What is this pride really geared toward? It is the pride that the wicked have directed at God's people. You need to know something. Tonight, if you believe what the Bible says about the book of Genesis, and I believe you should, 
the majority of the world and the majority of the church thinks you are foolish. They will look down at you. They will laugh at you. But I want you to know something. God is watching. Tonight, if you believe that Jesus Christ literally died upon the cross, was buried and rose again, the world looks at you as foolish because a dead man doesn't come back to life. And most of the church would say, there are many ways to heaven. And they will look down at you as a closed-minded, old-fashioned lunatic for believing there is no other name under heaven which we must be saved. And what the nations of the world have done to Israel is they have celebrated their destruction. They have celebrated their demise. Their pride has put them up on a pedestal and said, God could do nothing to us. And friends, tonight I want to caution us as God's people, as a nation, as families and individuals that God's warning about pride still stands. Proverbs 29 verse 23, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. A man's pride will bring him low. Tonight, if you and I view that we are too big for God to correct, if we're too important for God to remove His blessing, if God has to because of who we are, friends, we have set ourselves up for the judgment of God. I made a statement this week, and this is what I personally believe, and you can disagree with me, and I will still love you. I believe God is going to do amazing things through His church in the last days. I believe God is going to work and move, but I believe that our country has crossed the line. I believe judgment is coming to the nation of America. I believe our wickedness and evil and just downright rebellion is God. Judgment is coming. I pray that God relents, that God spares us, but I just do not see how. And friends, when that judgment comes, everyone will have someone to blame. We'll blame it on the people in Wall Street. We'll blame it on the people in Congress. We'll blame it on the people in the White House. We'll blame it on the people in Springfield. But do not be mistaken. The blame will rest upon the pride and wickedness of the people. And so what I need to be reminded of is God humble me. Because I believe God can build His church even in the midst of persecution. I believe can God can use this church to reach our community no matter what is going on, if we will stay humble. God can restore your marriage even when everyone else seems to be failing. I was at, um, I was somewhere this afternoon. Where was I at this afternoon? Um, somewhere. Fox Meadows. Yes, thank you. Sounds like I need to be there. But someone came up to me and said, uh, you know, my wife and I were married 73 years. And I went, man, that's as old almost as my grandparents. That is just insane. Another lady who lost her husband last week said, we were married 72 years. 
And friends, I want you to know that I believe that God can still make that the rule, not the exception. I hope God leaves me here long enough to celebrate many of your 70th wedding anniversaries, your 50th wedding anniversaries, your 25th wedding anniversaries. It shouldn't be. How many times have I performed a wedding for them? I believe that even when marriages fail, that God can bring people together that can start that second chance, that new opportunity, and have a healthy, honoring marriage for the Lord. Why? Because if we'll stay humble, God can work. God can move. I do not believe that our testimony has to be we raise them in church, but like most kids, they have departed. They have ran. They have rebelled. They have not believed. I believe that God can raise up a generation of young people that can be used by Him for His glory. And I pray that starts here. But it won't if we as parents are so prideful that we think that church doesn't matter, that reading God's Word doesn't matter, that skipping the gathering of the saints together for any simple thing is important. We have to remember to do it God's way. The third and final thing tonight, and this is where it gets more positive because you're all looking at me like I've really rattled the cage. You can't look at me any worse than you did when I made the singing comments this morning. I'm just going to be honest with you. But in verses 17 through 21, God tells them that while it is going to be judgment, while it's going to be difficult, that God has a plan to restore and of hope. God has a plan of restoration and hope. Starting in verse 17. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. And there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Jacob a flame. But the house of Esau, Esau shall be stubble. They have chased shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Thou south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowlands shall possess Philistia, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captives of the host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. As far as Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then the Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now I believe this is twofold. One, I believe this is a promise to the nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom. That Jesus is going to rule and reign right in Israel, right in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And it is going to be a perfect kingdom. One that is ruled with absolute justice and righteousness and the nation of Israel who will experience the promises that they were intended to receive when they finally accept the Messiah. When they finally become the born-again believers of Jesus Christ. But for the rest of us, those promises continue to unfold in the book of Revelation. We do not have time, but yet I want you to read these. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. 
that there is going to come a day after the thousand year reign when the Lord will destroy His enemies. That they will not, they will not win. In Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 we know that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. A new Jerusalem coming down from God, from heaven. And he talks about this in verse 4 and says, God Himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They shall have no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And so while it might seem that the world is winning, that Satan is marching on, God wants you to be reminded that we win. And that He will make everything right. You say, Jake, what's my part of this equation? What does God want from me? What does God want from our family? What does God want from this church? I really appreciate you asking. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 19, it says this. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord. God just wants us to be humble. God doesn't expect us to fight the battle. God doesn't expect us to destroy the enemies. God doesn't expect us to do great and mighty things. All He asks us to do is humble ourselves. And the poor among the men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. What does humility look like in the church? What does humility look like in a home? And what does humility look like as an individual? Just bear with me. This will probably upset all of you. One, as an individual, it means, God, you're right and I'm not. Lord, your word is true and mine is just an opinion. And Lord, I'm willing to acknowledge that I need you in every decision that I make every relationship that I have, every opportunity that comes my way, Lord, I need you. What does that mean as a family? We'll just start with a husband and wife because that's never an issue in anyone's life. It means quit being selfish. It means when the Bible says to love your wife like Christ loves the church, that's what it means. And you can make up excuses, you can blame it on the preacher, you can blame it on your wife, you can blame it on her parents, you can blame it on anybody else. But what God says for you is humble yourself and love her like I love you. And trust me for the results. And the word that no pastor ever uses, I'll go ahead and use it. And likewise, wives, submit and respect to your husbands. You say, well, Jake, he's a no good, dirty, rotten. Do your best and watch how God can work. You say, Jake, I take the drippy faucet approach. Stop. You'll get that if you read your Bible. It means it's not about you. It means that you have to believe that God can work in your marriage, that God can change things, that God can forgive, that God can do things, but it's not about you. It's about what the Lord can do in your home. What does that mean for us as a church? 
that means the world does not revolve around us. The decisions that we make, the things that we want, the way that we do it, we are called to serve, not to be served. We're called to think of ourselves last and others first. We're to be reminded that if we are going to be great in the kingdom of God, we must be least. You say, Jake, but I've got wisdom, I've got expertise, I've got knowledge, I've got all these things, I've got money, i got... I... Look up here. God's the one that gave it to you. And God can take it all away. That means, Lord, we need you in every business meeting, every committee meeting, every sermon, every choir practice, every drama, every youth meeting, every children's activity. God, it's not about me. It's about you. What do you want? And if we can do those three things as an individual, as a couple, and as a church, I believe this with all my heart, there is no limit to what God can do. There is no limit. My prayer for this coming week is that God would move in a mighty way. That God would change lives, change homes, Change our church. You say, Jake, we have got it all figured out. You're not here enough. Because we're not perfect. We struggle. We fail. We make mistakes. As a husband, I, I can do things that I step away and thought, boy, that's going to cost you for a decade if she doesn't forgive. As an individual, I can do things and think, oh, Jake, that is not good. But tonight, I hope that you believe that God can work. And God will work if we will just not grieve and quench His Spirit. Tonight, if you would, pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for giving us the privilege of going through the entire book of Obadiah tonight. Lord, I pray that you would speak to this group of people. Lord, you know that I love them. I care about them. Lord, I'm so privileged to be the under-shepherd in this place. God, but I know you love them even more. And God, no matter what I could ever dream of you doing in this place, Lord, you have bigger plans, bigger ideas. And God, while I want to reach the lost, I believe you have a bigger plan and purpose to reach the lost. And so tonight, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do the only thing that you've asked us to do, and that's to humble ourselves. Father, whether it's someone here tonight that's lost, that needs to be saved, whether it's a believer that's allowed pride and unforgiveness to come into their heart, or tonight, Lord, it's someone that's growing and, and thriving in their relationship with you and says, Lord, I'm ready for what comes next. God, I'm willing and ready. Use me. Lord, maybe tonight it's about decisions about baptism or church membership or calling to missions or ministry. Whatever it is tonight, Lord, that you would just see us for what we are and use us for your glory. Tonight, Lord, set us free to be who you want us to be. And I ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.